We uh, have started a, a new series, as I said at the start of the service, on um, fruitfulness on the front line. It's by a book uh, by Mark Green of that title. He's from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, and he's uh, put together this book. And I know some of you, uh, at least one house group, has started to look at that. And um, I sent out an On the Fits, um, given that title, etc. And um, we're going to jump from the first chapter into these six models. He has six M's that uh, he uses to help us to be nurtured as we go on to whatever our front line is, which we looked at uh, just a couple of weeks ago and we can always be looking at again. Um, but those are um, modeling uh, godly character, which we'll look at this morning, um, making good work, in other words, doing our vocational work as, or wherever we're doing work or wherever we're doing to the best of its ability, ministering grace and love, molding culture, um, being messengers for truth and justice and peace, and the final one, um, the messengers for the gospel of Jesus. Those are the six M's. And so this morning we're wanting to look at this, the first one, which is modeling uh, godly character. I want to be incredibly Presbyterian for once and, and look at this in three kind of ways. First of all, the need for modeling godly character uh, secondly, the nature of godly character, and nature is one of my favorite Palomina accent words that I have. People have mimicked me that for, with me for a many, many years. And then the last one, how do we nurture this godly character? Um, so let me, let me start with, I think, more of a need for godly character now than ever before. Now, we've always needed godly character. Don't got to say all the things you don't say as well as the things you say in a Northern Ireland sermon. Um, but I've become aware of um, perhaps more of a need, but we'll come to that in a second or two. Isaac's birthday on Friday was, uh, happened to coincide with the death of um, someone I had the privilege of spending a little bit of time with. He was a, an American singer called Rich Mullins who passed away 17 years ago uh, on Friday. And that reminded me of a mantra of mine. Um, I know that even Jonathan now plays bingo with my sermons as to the, the phrases I use and Ryan's over there and he will say he's not going to go on that again. But uh, uh, because Rich had passed away and because of this sermon, I thought it would be important to try and share this. Rich used to sign his autographs, Be Gods, with an apostrophe between the D and the S. I've shared this with you before, but who am I to have the ego to think you'll remember it? So I used to wonder, why does he sign his autographs, Be Gods, with an apostrophe between? So he wasn't asking us to be divine. He was asking us to be God's people. And eventually I discovered that Rich thought it was pretty easy to be Christian good. He thought that not smoking, not drinking, and not swearing was pretty easy, actually. But to be God's follower was much, much harder and deeper and more powerful. And so at many um, weddings I do, I would ask the couple not to have a good marriage, to have God's marriage. I don't want us to be a good church. There's many of them doing very little. I want us to be God's church, doing the things that God asks us to do. And I suppose today I want to paraphrase that phrase that I've used for years and said, and saying, don't be good, be godly in character. Mark Green uses stories a lot in his books. I think that's part of his deal, that you kind of take people in their situations, tell their stories, and maybe that would inspire us to ours. I want to tell you a good story and a bad story this morning that follows up on what I've just said about uh, don't be good, be, be godly. 
I have a friend who used to run a, a, a big company, and um, he would have uh, he, he would have a faith. I don't want to this goes out on the internet, so he might be listening to this saying, "Steve, you really didn't do me justice there in what you were saying." Um, he would have um, had a very strong evangelical faith and uh, struggled with some tenets of that faith at this point in his life, but would never in any way have walked away from being very sympathetic and uh, church-going and very involved in his church and, uh, and serving in that church. But he would have some struggles with, with the Christian faith, and that's the whole point of this, but it's a byproduct of this story. He told me this story one day about somebody who worked for him. Uh, they'd grown from one or two people in the company to maybe 30 or 40, and um, there was this one evangelical Christian who had joined the company, and, he, and because of where he came from and because of who he was, for him, he was able to assess that and, and really analyze that. And he said this to me. He said, Steve, you know, he does all the good things. He doesn't swear. He doesn't laugh at the dirty jokes. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't go out with the guys to get drunk on a Friday night. Um, he might be seen the odd time reading his Bible during his break. He does all the good things. But he said, Steve, when somebody in the company in his office asks for somebody to stay behind to help him, or they need to go the extra mile, he has never once offered to help. He said, Steve, he's doing all the good things, but he's missing the things he needs to do to be a witness for Christ. And how easily have we all done that? We put together these behavioral things that think this is our witness to Jesus, but actually the depth of our character and what we've read this morning from Galatians 5 is not alive and well in our lives. And therefore, actually, the good things that we're doing is almost working against us rather than for us because we're just not naturally doing the things a godly character would do. Another story about someone I've had the privilege of getting to know. And this last week I've been thinking about more than I maybe normally do. And forgive me, you've been waiting for it. Uh, Neil Sedgwick has been very concerned about it on Facebook. There is a new U2 album out. I don't think it's the U2 album, but part of it's out. And we'll not go into all that. But in the middle of that, basically what, what this album's doing, I'm not going to go into the album. That's not the point of this. We're not even going to look at the theology of Bono this morning. We're going to look at the life of somebody in his life. Um, he talks, uh, they say, this album's all about their youth, and Bono lost his mother at 14, and that caused anger, frustration in a 14-year-old boy with a brother who was eight years older than him, and his father find it very difficult to deal with a mother who actually fell dead immediately, just sudden death, at her father's funeral. Bono struggled with that, he struggled with that the rest of his life. But on the same street in Cedarwood Road where he was brought up, There was a family. And that family became almost his family. When he was struggling with all this pain and trauma he was going through, this is where he went to eat in a family life. And he didn't just get family, he got family deluxe. There's 10 children, two parents. He calls them an Old Testament tribe. They are an Old Testament tribe. And in this home, they took him faithfully to the gospel hall meetings. And this is where he says he first heard the scriptures being preached and got himself to not only to read the scriptures, but find himself in the scriptures. But I don't think that was the key. It was in his theological formation for sure. 
But the key was a woman called Winnie Rowan. She goes to the scripture union camps, or she did, that I would have done down in Avoca, not the one that our guys go to, although some of her children were at that one this year. Winnie is just this woman who is just godly. She's gentle, she's quiet, but she just gives. She had ten children. And let me tell you, and they won't mind me saying it, they give her a bit of a time, these ten children. And she took another one in. She just loved him. She just showed him a godly character. Her front line was just her own home. She didn't know it was a front line. She didn't know she was doing anything. She just did it. Why did she do it? Because of this gospel hall, godliness that she'd been taught, that she lived out in the life that she had. She didn't change the world in Cedarwood Road. Or did she? Because the impact of her quiet, gentle godliness has touched the lives of millions. Because when one person needed a godly character modeled, she modeled it. Nothing spectacular except the extraordinary fruit of the Spirit of God in her life. We, I believe, are on a new front line. We've been in it for 20 years. Last Sunday night, Gladys Daniel came to give a sociological perspective on emerging church. It was a fascinating night, not least by the people who were in this building, because not many churches have unpack this stuff. We're not going to go into the theological ruminations. I don't even think that Gladys did because she's a sociologist. But as a pastor and a missioner, as I am, the night was fascinating in who I was speaking to after that service in this building over tea and coffee. We as the church are not only not adding to the numbers that are being saved, We are losing on a daily basis hundreds of Northern Ireland 20s and 30s somethings who just are flocking out. People here who were full-time Christian workers who are saying, I can't find anywhere to go to church now. I'm really struggling. I'm going now because I want to bring the children up with it, but I don't find anywhere that I can be honest or I can be open or I can share or I don't understand all the judgmental moralizing that goes on. Many of them are souls who are crushed. And I wonder, let me read it to you. Again, as Philip read to you, but I wonder what's crushed them. The fruit of the Spirit is Love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What is it about who we are that has crushed so many souls? I'm not going to go into that in 
all kinds of other ways. And there's many problems in our postmodern world that has caused so many of the difficulties in their thinking and in their uh, living out whatever they want to live out and all of that kind of stuff. And I know this is a complicated one, but could I ask a question that perhaps, 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 as we unpack and as we critique postmodernism and its implications to the world and the church, could we maybe also unpack and critique the weaknesses of modernism? Where maybe actually it was reasonably easy because it was very objective and proclamational. And we got away with maybe not living the godly character that is the foundation of being on the front line. I wonder if actually it was so objective over maybe a century of evangelism and church nurture that we haven't had to really live up to the godly character of God that is right at the heart of who we are. I wonder. I'm just surmising those things. But what I'm saying is that if we want to reach this generation, even keep this generation involved in church and Christianity, the one overriding thing that they're going to need to find is an authentic, godly, living, and relationship with such people. It's so vital in our day. Desperate need for it. What's the nature of it? Well, we've just talked about that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Or I could add First or Second Peter chapter 1, by his divine power, um, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us a very great and precious promise. Sorry, I'll go down because time's run away from us. Verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. There's these times through the New Testament where, where, the, where the writers, Paul and Peter particularly, write about these godly characteristics that the Holy Spirit should be building inside of us. And remember, think for a moment, who are the people in your life who have loved you and what impact has that made? Who are the people that even in the midst of crisis, even in the midst of struggling in the front line, have sensed, you sense within them a deep joy that's not affected by happenings, but is actually just, it's a joy to be with them because they seem to be able to deal with the challenges of life. Those who live at peace with themselves and peace with other people. Those who are patient with us. Those who tolerate us when we're just numpties that need tolerated. What are the impact of those kinds of people in your life? The people who are kind to you for no other reason other than that they're kind to you. Have an authentic goodness that you just know when you're around them. There's something about these people that carries no baggage that is not conceited or envying anybody, but are just authentic and good. Faithful, who never let go of that love that they have for you, who are just gentle in spirit. And you know in their lives they're self-controlled. Oh, they're not self-righteous. They're not telling you of how they deal with They just know that 
They're self-controlled. They're able to deal with life in a balanced, holy, godly way. When you think of people who show those traits, you're drawn to them. They energize your life. They change your place of work. They change your home. They change your street. They change life. You can't argue against it. There's no law against it. There's no theology against it. There's no philosophy against it. It's just what we all long for in the people around us. That is the nature of those born of the Spirit. How do we nurture it? Timothy Keller does really great stuff in his commentary on Galatians in this particular bit. He is this, and we can't go into it again today because of time, but he goes into this um, sarx versus spirit. Sarx being a, a Greek word for desires, the sinful nature, all of that kind of stuff. And how those in Galatians 5 that Philip just read to us, how those seem to be in competition here in this particular chapter. But he says, Keller, that this is not your bad side against your good side or your flesh side against your spirit side. Many would say that the, the translation of that as flesh has been unhelpful. Some people have changed it to lust, and he says that's unhelpful as well. Keller says that it would better translate it that there's something within us that goes to over-desire. It's not a bad thing within us, but it's a thing within us that sends us to over-desire. And over-desire may be for good things, but we just go crazy about it, and we just get obsessed about it, and we haven't the self-control or the balance that the Spirit brings into our lives to send us in a better way within our lives for better fruit within our lives? How do we change? How do these things become real in our lives? How do we nurture them? Well, think back to uh, end of August there when I was talking about Peter. Remember I was talking about the, the charcoal fire that he denied Jesus in front of, and then the charcoal fire on the beach when Jesus brought the fish after the resurrection, and there was some sense of, oh, there's a healing going on here. We said it was objective healing and the salvation that grace brings us in Jesus' death and resurrection, but we all talk, also talked about it as a subjective salvation. Peter in that moment knew not only that his sin was taken away in some um, cloud of whatever judgment it might be, to actually, I've had my foibles and quirks, my fault lines dealt with. Jesus has healed me of those. The spirit, the fruit of the spirit is beginning to grow in Peter. I mean, you think in the character that Peter is in the gospels, the ear cutting off, the denying Jesus, the I'll sort it out, Lord, don't worry about me. I'll make sure nobody ever takes you to a cross kind of thing. To then the Peter that we just read in Second Peter, or the, the Peter of the Acts of the Apostles, the Peter who led the church, what went down there? What force caused that? This force of grace and the Holy Spirit changed him from being this kind of person here to this person here. Over-desire, over-zealous, to this balanced, fruit-of-the-spirit kind of person. I pondered in that sermon in August as I was running up and down Ballycastle Beach. Not often you can run up and down Ballycastle Beach because the stones every day are in a different place and stones are very hard to run across. But we had these glorious times in August when I was able to just lap the beach up and down it. And I was running the Saturday before I preached that sermon and I was thinking about the sermon and I was thinking, what were those moments when 
you, you had the denial charcoal thing and then you had the redemption charcoal fire by the sea. And as I was pondering it all, I get this picture in my head as I was running of this guy about five years ago in Ballycastle Beach. He was really fit. And he just would run round the beach. And I was at the time a good four stone heavier than I am now. But I'd run when I was younger. And I remember walking Odie on the beach and thinking, oh, I wish, I just wish I was able to run this beach. And there I was, running this beach. And it was like, as I'm pondering the sermon and the wind or the spirits blowing in off the, it all just, it was like God saying, Steve, you see the fault lines and the foibles and quirks in your life? I can deal with those the same way we've dealt with the four stone and the unfitness. You know those new disciplines you had to kick in with? The habits that you had to deal with? Do you know when you were in the room for every meeting that you went to and there was a huge plate of chocolate biscuits at every meeting and how you had to at the start for the first two months sit at the other side of the table so that you weren't within reach of the chocolate biscuit plate? And do you remember how then after three months that day when Father Martin said to you, you're sitting a bit close to the biscuits and you said to him, no issue anymore. And do you remember how the both of you were talking about that, that habit that you can change? Those things that can be changed in your life can be changed by discipline and a good bit of help from God. That can happen to your impatience. You're an only child, Steve. That makes you very impatient because there was nobody in your life to tell you what to do. You just did whatever you want. That's a fault line, Steve. And you've got implications from that. But you know what? If you surrender it, and if you start to concentrate on it, and if you give in to my spirit within you, you can deal with that fault line. It's going to take a little bit of time. You're going to have to do things and stand away from things. But soon it will become a part of who you are. It can happen in your soul the way it happened in your body. Because I long for the fruit of the Spirit, Steve, to be growing in your life. We need tomorrow morning. And who am I kidding? We don't have long enough to wait to tomorrow morning. We need this afternoon. Who am I kidding? We don't get the luxury of waiting to this afternoon. We need people right here beside us in this congregation, which is our fault line. To model godly character. There might be somebody sitting right beside you now. That just needs the godly character. Beside them in the pew. Or as they're drinking something over coffee. Or as they're picking their children up. Or as they go out the door at the end. That's the first front line. Where we are right now. Then there's other front lines when we get home. There might be difficulties at home. There might be difficulties in our street. There's fault lines tomorrow wherever we're going to, or front lines tomorrow wherever we're going to go. And on those front lines, we will come very soon in this series to look at all the things that we need to do on those front lines. But the foundational thing and the most important thing, and I think the thing that will change most lives around us, will be when the fruit of the Spirit begins to interact with the people that we meet on the front line.
don't need a degree in theology or go to some how to preach as a layperson or even how to share your faith with somebody to have the verses or whatever else. We'll talk about all those things in this series. But in this one, I believe that all we need to do is to surrender to the Spirit of God by the grace of God to begin God in us to discipline ourselves that we might begin to develop within us godly characters that will make an impression on everybody we meet from the person who doesn't have the money beside you to get out of the car park what do you respond to the person in a shop that you've given them a 20 pound note after you bought a box of matches how do we respond To the person that we meet coming out of a hospital, maybe as we're going in and they have more issues than we have or whatever, how do we respond? To the people we sit beside at the desk or the people that we lecture or on our staff team or whatever else. Tomorrow, today, right now, the biggest impact we can make is to not just be good and tell them, oh, we went to church yesterday and we're Christians but to model in front of them the character of God, alive and well by his Spirit through us. Let's pray. Our God, we don't have to look too deep to find fault lines within us, foibles, quirks, idiosyncrasies that have all been caused by the conditioning of the world around us and the banging and bashing around we've taken since we were born here on earth. And yet we believe that what we read in Galatians today is for us here. That the fruit of the Holy Spirit can begin to dwell so much within us that we might model godly character to those we bump into or we sit down for coffee with or we have a meeting with or we work with or we serve or we care for or we love. And so we pray, Lord, that your Spirit might search deep within us. Challenge us, Lord. Yes, if we need to, Lord, correct and rebuke us. And then by your grace and by the power of your Spirit, help us to be those who with self-discipline will begin to work alongside your Spirit to find this fruit coming to the fore in our lives to make an impact on those that we meet. We're aware, Lord, that sometimes now the proclamation of our gospel is not even heard, probably not agreed with, probably argued against. So to have a voice, we maybe need to reveal and model this godly character even more than we've had to in the past. So we give ourselves to you, surrender to you, and ask that your spirit would mold us and shape us into the likeness of Christ. Because it's in his name we pray and for his glory we live. Amen.